Okay, our text is going to be Titus chapter 3. We have multiple buttons to be pressed over there. Did you guys get them? You guys have so much skill. I am so grateful for those who serve with us and who make ministry happen. I really, really am. Have you found it? Well, for the last time in this series, our text is from the book of Titus, chapter 3 now, verses 9 through 15. And this is the word of Almighty God. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He's self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Lord, now as we turn to your word, we've sung your word, we've sung of your glory. We just plead with you to open our lives, our hearts, our minds to you. God, do a work in our hearts that will help us to grow in you and repent of sin and be the church you want us to be. Help us to live with right doctrine that comes from a clear gospel. We ask it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Y'all can be seated. So we find ourselves today at the end of the letter of Paul to Titus. We have spent 10 weeks, 10 messages in this book, hearing God call us to right doctrine for right living. Back in chapter 1, 1 to 4, Paul greeted Titus with a doctrinally rich introduction. And in that intro, Paul made the gospel the very clear beginning of everything that was going to follow. We did three sermons on one through four, and that series focused us on our identity in Christ. Christians are slaves of God. You guys remember the sermon about being slaves? Slaves of God, the elect saved through faith, under the authority of God's word, hoping in eternal life, carrying the gospel to the nations, and living united to God and to each other in the church. Then in verses 5 to 9 of chapter 1, Paul told Titus to appoint godly elders, leaders of the churches that were in the towns in Crete. And the whole point for them was to teach the church right doctrine, and to protect the church. Elders are needed in every church. They're supposed to be men of godly character. They're supposed to be men of doctrinal trustworthiness. Every faithful church needs godly elders. We need godly elders. And Paul particularly pointed out the need for elders on Crete Because there were false teachers who were destroying households, turning families upside down. The false teachers needed correcting, 
And we learned about those false teachers and God's condemnation of their false doctrine in 1, 10 to 16. Then in chapter 2, we saw how you and I are supposed to live among one another. And these are mainly household things, the characteristics of older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and household slaves. And we saw that we are always to show godly character for God's glory. We specifically saw as we studied chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, that, a, that our church and every church needs older believers to invest in and to teach and to train younger believers for the sake of the gospel. And if you're an older believer, I guarantee you that you heard a call from God that you need to be investing your life in others. There's no, there's no retirement from the Christian life. There's a call and a need for older believers to press the kingdom forward. Then in chapter 2, 11 to 15, there was a gloriously clear presentation of the gospel. It undergirds the call to right living. Right living comes out of right doctrine, right beliefs. Then chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, we saw how Christians are supposed to live in the middle of an ungodly society responding both to authorities and to all people. And then, I think predictably, verses 3 to 8 were yet another presentation of the truth of the gospel. And why? Right doctrine leads to right living. When Paul presents us with things that we're supposed to do and things we're supposed to be, he's careful to make sure that we grasp the gospel at the source of all of that life change. And here we are, guys, one last section to cover. I want to ask you, would it surprise you if I told you that this section is going to call us to defend right belief so that we in the church can live rightly in unity for the sake of the ministry? Does that sound about like tracking with the book so far? Paul's consistent. We're going to find three final points for Titus as we wrap up this powerful little letter. So, point number one, guard against false doctrine. Point number one, guard against false doctrine. Titus chapter 3 verse 9 says, But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Wouldn't it be nice if we never had to worry about negative stuff. How many of you would be pro-non-negative living? Sound good? I'm in. I'm in. Right? Man, if everybody did what they were supposed to do, felt how they were supposed to feel, thought how they were supposed to think, wouldn't the local church be a happier place? Now, I'm not saying that we all have to become the same person. Look around. Is there anybody in here you want to be? We don't have to laugh at the same jokes. We don't have to like the same music. We don't have to enjoy the same foods, which is good, right? How many of you are sushi people? How many of you are not sushi people? There you go. Apparently, we can't have a church sushi fellowship and have it go well. But what if we all agreed on just what's true? If we agreed on what's good, 
If we agreed on what's central to life, wouldn't that be a nice thing for the church? I sure think so. Well, sadly, we've already seen it in this book. The church is never totally safe from those who would bring in lies, from those who would mingle lies in with the truth. No matter how well the church starts, no matter how well we've done over the recent years, and I believe by the grace of Almighty God, we've actually done very well. God has blessed our dear church over the past years. Always a danger for any church to be infiltrated by false doctrine, unbiblical teaching, ungodly faith. Well, back in chapter 1, I told you Paul told Titus that the elders of the church needed to be ready to deal with dangerous false teachers. Let me show it to you again. Titus 1, 10 through 16. The verses read, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. In that passage, we saw that teachers influenced by Jewish doctrine and forms of Jewish-influenced superstition were doing damage. Now, back to Titus 3. Paul tells Titus, avoid foolish controversies. The word for foolish in Greek there, it actually has the same root from which we get the word moron. Don't get entangled in stupid, moronic arguments. How many of you would not, how many of that would knock you all off social media right now? Ain't it true? There's some dumb arguments that people get into. What kind of arguments here is Paul meaning, though? He tells Titus avoid controversies about genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law. So the church on Crete was being infiltrated by false Jewish teachers who were trying to bring things into Christianity that are just not part of the Bible. It says genealogies. That is not Paul forbidding you participating on Ancestry.com. I don't know that I would do that if I were you. You're giving a lot of data to people, but that's you. But the point about genealogies here is that the Jewish teachers were bringing in superstitious teachings about Old Testament names in the birth records of books like Genesis. So these guys would take the names, right? So-and-so, and, and he was this old, and he fathered this kid, and then he died, and he was this old, and he fathered this kid, and then he died. Or if you're old King James from the, 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 the Letters of Chronicles, this one begat this, begat that, begat this. 
And what they would do is they would take the letters in the names and they would rearrange them to make them show you a hidden meaning, a secret Bible code. But guys, the Bible has never been about secret codes. Some of the false teachers would take a name with no other information about it, and then they would weave a whole fanciful story, building a legend about that person. That's not in Scripture. The genealogical arguments, the foolish controversies, they were arguments about non-inspired, made-up stories whose only connection to the Bible was that the name happened to be in the list. It would be like Christians having a massive argument over the old movie Ben-Hur. That name was in the book, but that's about as far as it goes. The quarrels about the law were arguments that people had about clean or unclean behavior. They go to Christians and say, hey, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to be more like a Jew. You can't eat this. You can't drink that. You can't wear those. That's what makes you a Christian. If you're going to be saved, you got to participate in religious rituals. you got to do good deeds to earn your way into God's favor, even if you have Jesus, they would say. They would argue that any Gentile, which is almost all of us, and I don't know if anybody's ethnically Jewish in our group, they would argue that if you wanted to be saved, you had to become physically circumcised, just like the Old Testament Jews. But you understand, don't you, that bringing that concept into a religious practice for the New Testament makes no sense. What was Old Testament circumcision about? It was about Abram saying, I'm willing to follow God, of course, but it was also about marking the line of descent, marking out exactly who were descendants of Abraham that might be carrying the line of the promise of the coming of the Messiah. Once the Messiah came, you don't need that mark anymore. It's done. The work is fulfilled. So we don't make circumcision a requirement for Christianity. Jesus did give us the ordinance of baptism. But see, circumcision was done to children of the nation because they were physically born into Abram's family. Baptism is given to those who have become spiritual children of God through Jesus Christ which is why we only baptize believers because only believers have been adopted into the family of God through Jesus Christ. But what's the appropriate response from us when we see that Paul warns us against false teachers of false doctrines who were distorting the, 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 the gospel? What do we do? Well, here's one way we respond. Before you let yourself get carried away with what some false teacher might say, think about what it means to be saved. No one in the entire world is ever saved or has ever been saved because of doing something good or not doing something bad. You cannot be a good enough person to go to heaven. You all understand that, right? You cannot go to heaven because you go to church by giving money, by going on a mission trip. Being saved has zero to do 
with whether you watch movies, drink alcohol, dance, or eat in a restaurant on a Sunday afternoon. You might choose to do or not do any of those things to the glory of God. Yes, your life will change as you seek to honor God with the things you do once you've been saved, but changing your life is not the thing that saves you. Romans chapter 3, verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. There's no religious work that will save your soul. If you're going to be a child of God, the way you become God's child is to believe in Jesus Christ and put your trust in Jesus, asking him to save you. Jesus is God who came to earth. We sang that a a few times here this afternoon. Jesus lived a perfect life. That's not like you or me. Jesus died on the cross to bear the punishment that you and I should receive for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave, proving that he did everything he set out to do. And the fact is, if any person is ever to be saved, we're only saved by trusting in Jesus and turning from self. Now, after you're saved, you're going to change. It is impossible to be saved and not changed. But changing does not save you. Once you're saved, not only are you forgiven, you're made alive to God. You receive the Spirit of God to live within you. The Spirit helps you to live and honor God as you open the Word of God. The Holy Spirit will convict you of sin. He'll help you grow. He'll open your heart to understand and love the Word of God. Doctrine matters, folks. Submitting to the clear teaching of Scripture matters. Getting the gospel right matters. And God warns us in Titus 3 that we want to keep our guard up against people who would teach us false things. So if anybody tells you that being a Christian is about anything other than totally trusting Jesus to save your soul, they're missing the point. Avoid their teaching. If anyone tries to tell you that they found a secret code in the Bible that shows them something in the Bible that other people don't see, get away from those people. If anybody tells you that they've heard something from God that's not in the Bible, turn away from that person. Watch out for unbiblical controversies and guard against false doctrine. Second point. You ready? You still with me? All right. Guard against the divisive. Or if you're English, you can call them divisive. Look at 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Did it it sound like I was being too harsh when I said get away from those who teach something that's not in the Bible? I'm glad. Look at the the, the call Paul makes to Titus. 
Warn someone who stirs up trouble one time. Warn them a second time. But if they will not change after those two warnings, have nothing more to do with them. Turn away from them. What you see in here is the very biblical concept of church discipline. You guys know that phrase, church discipline? Throughout the New Testament, God tells us how it is we are supposed to respond to believers in sin. You're not supposed to leave them alone and let them keep hurting themselves. We're not supposed to leave them alone and let them keep dragging down the local church or damaging the reputation of Christ. We are to actively take part in attempting to restore wayward believers to faithfully following Christ. Now, the warnings here in Titus 3, give them a warning, give them a second warning. The point there is you do something to try to help a sinful person see their danger. It's hard to warn somebody, isn't it? It feels awkward. We're afraid we're going to offend them. We're afraid we're going to come off judgy. We don't want to drive them away. But God has made it plain, hasn't he? If you love a brother in Christ, if you love a sister in Christ, you will warn that person if there is a sin, a damaging sin, a a repeating sin in their lives. The point of a warning is not to hurt somebody's feelings. The point of a warning is to make a person aware of their sin. The goal is that they will see their sin, they'll repent of their sin, and they will return to loving God with all their hearts. But if a person will not respond to two warnings, and these warnings would have come here from Titus, the leader in the local church, Titus and the others are supposed to turn away from the sinful parties, having nothing more to do with them. Titus is to treat unrepentant people who have been warned as if they are lost people. They're not part of the fellowship anymore. How can Titus do it? Paul himself, inspired by God, says, The one who keeps on sinning in the face of calls to repent is warped, sinful, and self Condemned. Titus isn't condemning them. Such a person is proving that they have been twisted by their sin, by their own actions. They show the rest of the church that they're not following Jesus. In Titus's context, the idea is pretty darn simple. Somebody's going through the church telling people that they've got to go through a particular ceremony if they want to be saved. Titus is supposed to go to that person and warn them that they are teaching false doctrine. Tell them, cut it out. Then Titus is to give them time to change. If the person will not change, Titus again, probably with somebody else in the church with him, will go to them and say, hey, you've got to stop this false teaching. And if the person still refuses to change, To use an old word, Titus is to shun them. The local church is to assume the false teacher to be dangerous, lost, in need of evangelism. They're certainly not to be considered part of the life of the local congregation. Where might we have to do something like this? 
In our day, it might be someone in the church teaching something false. But it might be somebody just consistently in sinful living that we need to correct. But the point's still the same. If there's somebody who's part of the church, a member of the congregation, living in sin, we have a responsibility. We are to lovingly warn them of the wrong of what they're doing, and we are to call them to repent. And we're supposed to do what we can to help them because, as you well know, repenting can be a long, hard process. Can't it? How many of you all have ever repented of a sin? Kelly and... <laughs> How many of you, when you repented of a sin, did it perfectly the first time? You just knock, your, knock it out with your repentance. You are like the repentmeister. You're so good at repenting that... Is that you? No. Repenting's hard. If it's hard for you, don't you think it's hard for your sinful brother and sister? So you go graciously and helpfully with them. But if a person stubbornly will not change after a warning, after another warning, with all the help that you offer, you're supposed to tell that person, the church is supposed to say to that person, you're not part of the church. This that I'm talking to you about right now is one of the reasons that church membership matters so much. When somebody joins the church, he declares himself to be a believer, a true follower of Jesus, committed to the word of God, committed to the ways of God. A person who joins the church declares both, I want to be here to serve and I want the church to help me follow the Lord. If you're a church member, you have said, I'm here to serve, and I want the church to help me to follow the Lord. That's, that's your claim. That's what church membership means. And when a person who's a member of the church is living in unrepentant sin, the church is to confront him. And if that person refuses to repent, and I'm not saying that they fail, I'm not saying that they struggle, I'm not saying they don't get it perfect, I'm saying if they just say, I will not, I'm not going to repent. Eventually, the church has to remove that sinful member from the fellowship. The church much must sadly say, we can no longer affirm this person's testimony. We as a body can't say, oh yeah, I know that guy. He's a Christian. We can't do it. Because following Jesus does include you being committed to Jesus as your Lord. If you won't follow Jesus then we cannot affirm that we believe you to be saved. Does that make sense? One of the ways we know that church membership is a biblical thing, it's a logical conclusion we draw from the issue of church discipline. Removing a person from the fellowship indicates that we know who belongs to the fellowship, right? You know how many people I can't do church discipline on because they don't come to our church? <laughs> I am not the pastor of all Las Vegas. The only people who have said to me and the other elders, please, church, 
care for me as the word of God commands, and I will serve in the church as the word of God commands, are the people who have united with our church in formal church membership. We can't remove somebody from the church who's never connected to the church. You can't remove somebody from the, the body if you don't know who's in the body. And I will tell you that just attending every once in a while doesn't mean you're part of the body. You're a guest and we're glad you're here. But church membership has a sweet and simple way for, member, for believers who are in the church body to partner together to help each other along for the glory of Christ. Here's the good news, by the way. If at any point during that discipline process, a sinful person acknowledges and turns from his sin, her sin, we forgive that person and we celebrate that, per that that person is restored to fellowship. Now, I will add that it may not mean that you will be allowed to serve in the same way you served before, depending on what the issue was. You know, if a person's caught embezzling funds from the church, Restoration does not mean that you let them be treasurer. What you do is you allow them to again be a part of the church body as a, for, as a forgiven believer in the Lord Jesus. You don't make them a second-class citizen. You just love that person and you help that person to find another way to serve the Lord in the body. The Puritans used to say that when discipline left the church, so did Christ. The church cannot simply be a place of fluffy, positive affirmation with no calls to right biblical living. And let me just say to you honestly, if you want a church that will give you fluffy words of affirmation without calling you to life change, I can tell you places you could go here in Vegas that would do that for you, but it won't be a church. If we don't help each other live in accord with Jesus, we don't love each other and we don't love Jesus. Now also realize, by the way, there's nothing harsh in the process I'm talking about here. It is a thing, it's a process to be bathed in prayer, full of love, full of gentleness, full of friendship throughout. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of... Do you guys see what word comes next? A spirit of what? Gentleness. You, the whole point of church discipline is that you are seeking and praying for a way to restore someone in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Gentleness, bearing one another's burdens, these aren't harsh, but they're at the very center of the process that we call church discipline. The process is about helping other people love and follow Jesus. It's about living together as the church, helping each other honor Christ more, and hoping, hoping, that we can let the world know that we affirm each other's faith. We, man, that's a Christian over there. That's a Christian over there. Because that person is living, trusting Jesus, turning from sin. You know, right now it'd be a good time for you to think about yourself. Are you actively living with something you know to be a sin? 
Are you doing something regularly you know to be wrong? Are you refusing to do something you know to be right? God sees. God calls you to change. If you say, I am a believer who follows the Lord Jesus, which, by the way, believers follow Jesus. You can't be a believer who doesn't follow Jesus. If you say, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, you've got to turn from your sin to obey the commands of the Lord. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Maybe you've got a Christian friend that you know is living in sin. Maybe it's someone who's sexually immoral. Maybe it's someone who's a gossip. Maybe it's somebody speaking things about God that are not true. Maybe it's somebody drinking to the point of drunkenness. Maybe it's somebody abusing drugs. Maybe, and don't miss this as a sin too. Maybe it's somebody who says they're a believer, but they just won't gather coming to worship services as God commands. As a loving believer, go to that person and in the love of Christ, call them to change. You don't have to be cruel. You don't have to be judgmental. Just say, look, I love you in Christ, but this part of your life over here is, is dishonoring Jesus and that hurts you. So please turn from it and obey the command of God. And if they repent, guess what? It's all good. There's no formal process. It's just Christians being Christians. If they won't repent, Get another believer that you respect and get them into the conversation with you. If they still won't repent, come talk to me and the elders and we will talk to the person and eventually if they won't repent, we will bring it to the church and we will say to the church, if this person will not repent, we have to say that we believe that this person is living like a lost person, not like a Christian. We cannot affirm their testimony and we must remove them from our church's membership as a testimony to the sinful person and to the community that we believe the word of God. Now, some people would argue against this. You can, you can imagine that what I just said is not necessarily culturally popular everywhere. Some would say, well, Jesus says don't judge. Jesus says we've got to forgive people. This is just Paul. Well, just in case you need to see the words of Jesus here in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Y'all, this stuff is hard, but if we'll learn to do it as a church, to lovingly get involved in each other's lives we will be a stronger, more biblical, more loving church. And since this process is so important as it protects us as believers, 
I've got to remind you, and I don't know, I mean, honestly, I don't know who all's in the room. You guys might have all left by now anyway. But you, if you are not, need to become a formal member of the church. If you're a Christian worshiping with us at PRC, and for some reason you've not gone through the process of joining the church, you need to do so. Come to the intro to PRC class whenever we offer it. By the way, don't give me some, oh, I can't make it when you offer it. Talk to me. I'm a flexible dude. We'll find time. I've done our intro to PRC class at Chili's with somebody before. They didn't even buy, by the way. I had to do it. But <laughs> that's okay. Attend the class. Learn who we are. Learn what we do. Learn what we believe. Find out, are we on the same page? Are you a believer like we're believers? If so, link up with us. Become an, a member who's officially part of PRC. Say to us, say to the body, I want to be somebody y'all can count on. And I want the church to help me grow that is what this is about, and this is utterly, sweetly, beautifully biblical. So Paul's warned us against the divisive. He's warned us against dangerous doctrine. He reminds Titus that church discipline is an important thing. Now, let's get to the close, guys. This is so good. Looking at life together as the church. Point number three, work together for the sake of the gospel. 12 to 15. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works, so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So here's the closing portion of the letter from Paul to Titus. If you summarize it all as you watch it unfold, you're going to see that the call is for the people of God to work together, helping each other out in order to accomplish God's plan for God's glory. We are to work together for the sake of the gospel. So Paul says, I'm going to send a couple of guys, one of the two of them I'm going to send to you, Titus, on Crete. Doesn't know which of the two guys he's sending yet, right? But both guys, Paul says, they're trustworthy men. They can take over the role that Titus is playing. Because if you remember this book from the history, Paul sent Titus for the purpose of straightening out the mess that was in Crete. He did the same thing sending Titus to Corinth, by the way. So Titus gets the rough jobs. And then once the heavy lifting is done and things are lined out, Paul says, I'm going to send somebody else now to Crete to guide the church into growth because we've all got our own roles to play. And Paul wants Titus to come and join him at a place called Nicopolis because that's where Paul's going to spend the winter. And I'm going to guess that that's where Paul and Titus, they'll get their heads together. They'll, they'll plan for what the next ministry assignment is for Titus, which is probably how Titus gets sent to Dalmatia at the same time Paul is arrested and dragged back to Rome and eventually executed. We read about that in 2 Timothy 4.10. But let this little instruction from Paul to Titus actually teach you something, okay? Doesn't it sound like we're getting to the goodbyes and you should just glaze over? Look, here's, the, here's the, what you should learn from Paul. We need each other. Paul, okay, can you all think of a better super Christian than Paul? 
He wrote 13 of the New Testament books. That's pretty good, right? He preached. He had spiritual gifts. Paul sent somebody to go take care of Crete so Paul's friend and fellow minister Titus could come to him. Paul needs his friend. Christians, we need each other. You need my help, which is a terrible thing to think. I need your help, which is obvious. You cannot survive in this world without biblical fellowship. Titus, he's also supposed to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. Now, we have no idea who Zenos is, but this gives us an indication that at least one lawyer will be in heaven. <laughs> and and maybe, maybe Zenos and Apollos are the guys that brought the letter to Titus. We don't know. But now they've got to go on. They've got someplace else to go serve. And again, we see the point that Christians are supposed to help each other out. They're supposed to help accomplish the ministry. Verse 14 says, And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. That's the point all the way, right? Help each other out. Christians, help each other out. When a brother or sister in Christ is, has it, they have a need, help them meet the need if you can. Don't be blind to people's pain. Help each other out so as to be fruitful in the ministry. And then you think about the church community, right? When you think about the church community, you think of us as a united body. But you should see us as a body that helps each other grow and helps each other do ministry. You can't faithfully grow in your faith and you can't faithfully do ministry if you are not connected to other people in the body because you need them and they need you. In our culture today, there are churches all over the place that treat it like a local gym. You just pay your dues, come in, work on your machine and leave. Some people pay their dues and come a lot. Some people pay their dues and come for a couple of weeks in January and then wonder in March how this money is still coming out of their bank account, but it just does because they stopped going to the gym a long time ago. But the church is not to be the local gym. The church is not to be a country club. We are a body. We are a family. We are a flock shepherded by Jesus. And for the church to function, we need every last member, every single last member member to be committed to every last member for the glory of God we need to work together we need to own responsibility for the ministry getting done we need each other and we need to not write each other off or ignore each other or hold back from each other then the closing lines come Paul sends greetings from his friends to the people at Crete he closes with a blessing you know why? Blessing is a part of Christian culture. And I wonder, when we talk, when you talk with other believers or about other believers, how often do we speak words of blessing, words of kindness, words of prayerful support over each other, words of sweet appreciation, words of, I pray the Lord's best on you. As you think about us needing each other, as you think about us helping each other, maybe you should think about ways in which you can speak blessings over others in the body. How can you communicate to others your desire that they would love the Lord, that they would experience God's best, that they would be blessed? And as the book closes, so closes this last point. How are you, Christians, working with others to make the gospel happen?
I hope you're taking interest in the lives of other believers. I hope you're caring about each other. God's word tells you to care about each other enough to confront each other when one of you is in sin. God's word tells you to care about each other enough to stop someone from unbiblical teaching. God's word tells you to work together and meet each other's needs for the sake of the gospel. All of the book of Titus has mingled two issues for us, right doctrine and right living. If you believe what's right, you're going to live what's right. Doctrine matters because it changes what you think. It changes what you do. That's what this book has called us to. So may we believe the word of God rightly, and may we follow the commands of God to love the Lord our God with our actions and with our minds.